welcome not only our Bible class participants here in our gymnasium this morning, but also those listening over KFUO, 8.50 a.m. or worldwide KFUO.org. We're going to continue our practice here this morning of taking a look at and studying in greater depth the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, not today's, but next Sunday's scripture lessons. And those uh, we'll be taking a look at in greater depth. That, again, will be for Sunday, April 29. Let's begin with a word of prayer then this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Good Shepherd, who voluntarily went to the cross, laying down his life for us. We thank you that through him our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life. We thank you also for this opportunity to study your word together. We pray your Holy Spirit will be with us, will guide us into your truth. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. All right. Uh, today, uh, in church, we, this is the fourth Sunday after Easter, and that traditionally or commonly is called Good Shepherd Sunday. So you notice today all the imagery or most of the imagery in the lessons is about sheep and shepherds. Next Sunday, we're going to be focusing on the image of the vine and the branches from John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So we'll look at that coming up as we study especially the gospel lesson for next Sunday. All right, today we're going to look at the first reading. Again, after Easter, we spend some weeks in the book of Acts, which is uh, the only history book in the New Testament. And that's just so that in, we can get the book of Acts in somewhere, in some extended fashion, in our readings. So it replaces what traditionally would be the Old Testament reading slot on many Sundays, some Sundays, following Easter. Now, if you remember, the last three weeks, we've been seemingly on this same incident uh, of the uh, Peter and John healing the man who had been lame from birth, and then the reaction, and then the, the sermon, and then the, the religious authorities coming and arresting them, and then Peter's sermon to them. Good news, we're off of that incident today. We're moving on in the book of Acts, okay? After three weeks with that same incident, we're moving on. And today we've got the incident of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and that's in Acts chapter 8, and we'll see what occurs there. I'll just read the first couple of verses. This is rather lengthy. We're going to look at verses 26 through 40, so rather than read the whole thing, we'll kind of go in chunks here, and we'll take this apart. So starting at verse 26 of Acts chapter 8, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. All right, so let's stop there for a moment. First of all, an angel of the Lord comes. Now, there's been a lot written on this in, in this chapter. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord 
is many times, most times actually, an actual appearance of God, specifically the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The question is whether here in Acts 8, the angel of the Lord is also Jesus Christ. Now, after he has uh, ascended and so on, many scholars, the ones that I read, said, no, that this is just an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. And in fact, we see in verse 29 that instead of angel of the Lord, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned there. So as to the exact, precise, who is this angel of the Lord, is it Jesus Christ come back uh, to this earth in the form of a spirit? Most uh, scholars, again, would say, no, this is probably not the same as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And there's an indefinite article there, an angel of the Lord, rather than the angel of the Lord. So I would tend to agree uh, with those. Now... He, this angel of the Lord says to Philip, now immediately we've got to say, well, who is this Philip? The first tendency would be to think, uh, for a lot of us, I think, would be to say, well, this is obviously the apostle Philip, the, uh, the disciple Philip. No, we think this is actually in Acts 6, verse 5, the uh, Greek-speaking Jews complain that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles say, it's not right that we're having to give up time in preaching and teaching the gospel in order to wait on tables. And they appoint seven men who were to be of good reputation, uh, filled with the Spirit, and wise. And Philip is one of those seven who is appointed. You can read it in Acts 6, verse 5. It's kind of interesting that... These guys are appointed, and, and it's sort of as you read Acts 6, the understanding is they're just going to be taking care of more of the physical stuff, you know, the distribution of the food and so on. But yet Stephen is one of these seven as well, and he goes out and is preaching and teaching and, and ends up being the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. And then, lo and behold, in Acts 8, we see Philip uh, up in Samaria preaching and so it's, it's kind of interesting. These guys were not just, you know, taking care of physical things. They seem to have been out also preaching and teaching and, and so on. So Philip is one of those seven who were chosen. And notice here, this angel of the Lord says, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You always went down from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was, Mount Zion was the holy place, and no matter where you went, you always went down from Jerusalem. Or if you went to Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, it says this Gaza is a desert place. Now, it's a, actually a wilderness. It's different than maybe we would think of a desert in this country. It is rocky. Uh, it is kind of a desolate place. Uh, there is very little vegetation, and it's out there that he's going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. So he rises and goes, and there was an Ethiopian. Now, Ethiopia at that time was different than modern-day Ethiopia. It was a kind of a larger region, still in Africa, still in the African continent, but not equated with the uh, Ethiopia that we have today. 
Um, we think this guy was probably a Gentile who, for some reason, had gone to Jerusalem to worship, perhaps at one of the major festivals that were held at Jerusalem at the temple. Whether he was an actual convert to Judaism, we don't know, or whether he just stayed, you know, there on the outer courts and observed and, and worshipped, we really don't know. He at least seems to be what's referred to as a God-fearing Gentile, okay? And that's quite a trip to make from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship. Now he's on his way back, okay? Now, I'm not going to comment in great length about uh, the fact that he's a eunuch, uh, especially on the radio. You can, uh, you can look that up. You can Google that and uh, find out if you don't know. But uh, he's a court official, and when you read this, you might think, well, the queen's name is Candace. That's not true. Candace is not a name here. It is the name for the queen. It's like it's a title. It's like if we had, it's like the president or the treasurer. It's a title called Candace is the, is the title. In Ethiopia at this time, they thought that their king was a, was a son of the sun, S-U-N, the, the sun up in the sky. And they thought in Ethiopia at that time that for this king to engage in regular everyday business of running the kingdom was beneath him. So the queen, Candace, would do all of the business affairs on behalf of this king, whoever the king was at that time. Okay? So this guy, notice, he is, you might say, he's the secretary of the treasury for Ethiopia. Notice at the end of that, he was in charge of all her treasure. In other words, he's kind of the, the as I say, the secretary of the treasury. It was her treasury, but it's the country, you know, the, the territory's treasury. So this is no unimportant guy, I guess, is, is the way of to putting this, okay? Now, it says there he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we talked about that in just a little while ago. Um, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah. So very interesting, again, that if this guy is a Gentile... He's reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which tells you right away again, he is at very least a God-fearing Jew, or a God-fearing Gentile, I should say, okay? And notice there, he's, uh, uh, the, the Spirit, verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, so notice here we're switching from this angel of the Lord to the Spirit, go over and join his chariot. Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now before we get into what they were reading, notice the importance here of someone teaching someone else or someone guiding someone else. You know, it is... I think sometimes we take for granted, we use a lot of what I would call stained glass language in the church, you know, words that we throw around all the time and, and we understand them. And, 
you know, everything from grace to mercy to justification, sanctification, and we could go on and on and on. And for the new person who comes into that environment, we might as well be speaking Latin or, you know, some other, some other language because they just don't understand it. And that's why it's so important for us to, to see this, that he was reading Isaiah 53, which we hear every year, at least once a year, in Lent, and he didn't understand it. He's not going to understand it at all. How can I, unless someone guides me? So that's maybe a, an important cue for us. The other thing I would say here is that it really highlights, doesn't it, the importance of Christian instruction for our children and then for all of us in an ongoing basis. Uh, you know, God places in our lives those who can not only instruct us, but serve as, as a, a model for us in living the Christian life. How important that we stay connected with that in our lives. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the gospel lesson. You know, staying connected to the vine, to Jesus. But at any rate, you know, how can I, unless someone guides me? Okay? So now, going on, what's he actually reading? Now the passage, I'm in verse 32 here. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So this eunuch is reading this, and he doesn't know what this means at all. Now, we would say, who is that a prophecy concerning? Jesus, right. Written 700 years before Jesus walked on this earth, uh, inspired by God through the prophet Isaiah. Um, just a couple of these. You know, he opens not his mouth. Well, think of Jesus before Pilate. And on more than one uh, occasion in that interrogation, you know, we read that he said nothing or he kept silent. In, in, in direct fulfillment of this. He's a lamb. Well, what did John the Baptist say the first time he saw Jesus coming in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And uh, then we go on. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. You know, think again of Pilate who said... I think it was twice uh, during those verses, I find no guilt in him, right? So it was an injustice that he was convicted. There was no guilt in him. Or think of right before that even, uh, when Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious uh, court or, or trial, you might say, and they're bringing in, they're bringing in witnesses to try and convict him, and we find out that the witnesses couldn't even get their stories uh, straight. They were contradicting each other. So again, it's, it's an injustice that is done to him, and that's prophesied by Isaiah. But again, God uses all of that, and it is his plan to bring about redemption for the world. Going on, who can describe his generation? In other words, Who's going to describe his family history? 
He is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. From his life is taken, for his life is taken away from the earth. And he dies, of course, on Good Friday. His life is taken away from the earth. Okay? Speaking of his generation, it goes, we're not speaking here about any bloodlines or any relatives, but we are all now brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? So who can describe it? It's beyond anybody's ability to comprehend or to count. So he's reading this, and he, he's, the, the eunuch is reading this, and he can't figure out who is this talking about. So verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, in other words, that scripture that he was reading, the eunuch was reading, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news or the gospel about Jesus. Good Lutheran theology there, isn't it? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the message of Christ or the word. Yeah, the word or the message of Christ. Okay, So Philip is a good Lutheran here. He's following good Lutheran theology. And uh, we would say, again, the necessity of being in that word and the necessity of having someone there who can help to guide at times as well. Okay? So verse 36, so we, we kinda got a, we've kind of got a rolling Bible class going on here on a chariot, okay, uh, as, they, as they head down the road together. And we don't know how long this, this took. But, you know, we're thinking Philip is continuing to tell him from the scriptures, probably making the connections, as he does here, between Isaiah and Christ, maybe other connections as well, because, again, this guy is a God-fearing Gentile, would have been somewhat, we think, somewhat familiar, at least with the, the, the uh, Old Testament uh, at that time. So probably doing that, but we don't know for sure exactly what he's telling him. Verse 36, and as they were going along, the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's kind of a rhetorical question, right? What prevents him? Nothing. Nothing at all. And so, uh, they, verse 38, and he commanded, we think that's probably the eunuch commanding the chariot, since it was his chariot, commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Well, there's the purpose, right? There's the purpose for the Spirit, first this angel of the Lord, the Spirit, sending Philip out that way. Notice Philip doesn't ask why, he simply goes. The Spirit directed him that way. You think at times God puts us in the lives of certain people? at certain times in their lives? Yeah, uh, certainly so. I think we've all had uh, experiences like that in our lives where God has placed us uh, in someone's life at a time when they needed to hear the Word of God, uh, whether it was an unbeliever or whether it was a believer who just needed to be strengthened in that Word. But it's always the Word, isn't it? It's always the Word of God that does the work. We're simply the mouthpiece for it. And notice what happens here. There's a baptism that results. So it's kind of the traditional approach that we still follow today that there, notice there is instruction first. 
there's along the way, it's assumed, of course, that he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You would think that Philip at some point tells him about baptism, so he knows about it, because then he, then he asks for it. Uh, that's the same practice we follow today, that we ordinarily with adults will do some instructing first and uh, make sure there is, they're already expressing a faith in Jesus Christ. They're already confessing a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it begs the question, do we have to instruct adults before we would baptize them? Is it, is it enough that they are professing a faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, yeah. There would be no problem, no reason, no reason not to, that's a double negative, but we would have every reason to baptize them as soon as they are professing a faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, in the case with adults, the baptism is not creating a faith. There is already a faith and trust in Christ that is being verbalized even at that point. But we still baptize because those blessings in baptism are there for all people. And in fact, Christ has commanded us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So... We normally will baptize um, adults, and if there's any reason that they would want to be baptized before they complete, for example, an adult instruction class, uh, there would be nothing wrong with that at all. We would gladly do that. If, if they requested that, we would gladly do that. Okay? So that kind of follows the same, our text uh, lesson kind of follows the same practice uh, that we follow today with adults uh, and baptism. Okay? Verse 39, kind of a strange thing happens now. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now this eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Remember, he's going back home. So he gets back home to Ethiopia. And you think he just never says another word about this? Far from it. And uh, there, there are tra uh, tradition outside of the Bible says that he was one of the main people to bring Christ to that region. So now we see, we really see, why the angel of the Lord told Philip to go out there into this deserted area, this deserted place, just so he runs into this Ethiopian eunuch. Okay? He goes on his way rejoicing. But Philip, verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, that's about 20 or so miles from Gaza, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Azotus is a coastal city on the Mediterranean, and Philip is going to basically go up the coast until he gets to Caesarea, that'd be Caesarea Maritime, which was built by Herod the Great. It's an incredible uh, Place. You can go there today and, and see it, but he's going to go, so he's going to go up the coast preaching the gospel as he goes, and the next time we run into Philip is 20 years later. It's in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, and he's got four daughters by that time. What he did between now and then, well, he obviously had a family, but we don't know exactly. You know, was he preaching there at Caesarea? Was he going out in different territories from Caesarea? We just don't know. But so, you know, to, to summarize, uh, this Ethiopian, we see in the book of Acts, as we saw before, 
What we see today in, in, the, in the lesson from Acts that's in our worship services for today, how many men now are, are uh, counted among those who are saved? Anybody remember from 5,000 men? And we don't know how many women and children. And what about on Pentecost? We had how many people total? 3,000. So we see this exponential growth of the church in the book of Acts. Now this guy is going to go back to Ethiopia. Now we're talking about, you know, a whole other territory out there where the gospel is going to go. And he's going to go on his way rejoicing. Okay? All right. I think that's about it for this one. Any questions, comments about this before we go on to 1 John? Anybody? All right. Let's go on to the second lesson. Uh, also, we are seeing in these Sundays after Easter this year that we're going through the epistles of John. So this is, I think, our third or this must be our fourth um, Sunday that we are in 1 John. Now, let me, before we read this, let me summarize again, as I've done before. I know this sounds like a broken record. You've been here each week. But John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor. The tradition is that he settled in Ephesus. Uh, after he came back from being exiled to Patmos, the island there, uh, under Domitian, uh, we believe that John was sentenced to be uh, burned in a barrel of oil. He somehow avoided that fate, and but ended up being uh, exiled to this island of Patmos. It's there that we think he received the revelation. Then he comes back and ends his years in Ephesus uh, caring for uh, the Virgin Mary uh, as uh, Jesus instructed him from the cross to do. You go to Ephesus today, they'll show you a house that they believe is the house where, um, where John uh, cared for Mary. Uh, I'll just say don't bet the farm on that, that that's the actual house, but they'll show you a house anyway. And, and that's the tradition then, see? So, John became the elder statesman for Christianity throughout this whole area. Not just Ephesus, but this entire Asia Minor area. He was the last living disciple. The last living disciple who had seen the risen Lord, who had walked with Christ. And, um, and so he is very concerned now that there are false teachers who used to be within the Christian fold and have gone out from the church. Remember last week, I think I used the term secessionist. They seceded from the church. They're out there. And they're teaching false doctrines and apparently having quite a bit of success, unfortunately, amongst the Christians. And the false doctrines that they were teaching included the fact that Jesus did not come in the flesh. In other words, he did not take on human flesh. He was simply a spirit. Okay? Uh, secondly, they said that you did not, it didn't matter if you sinned or not, because in the end, your body's going to be destroyed anyway, so just go out and sin. And thirdly, strangely, they said that it didn't matter if you showed love to anyone. Uh, that really wasn't important for Christians to do. So as we read these lessons in church on Sundays, notice how John is hammering away at those false teachings, those three things he keeps hammering away. So also today, in our lesson, the first six verses, 
We're going to start at verse 1 of 1 John 4, but the first six verses are going to be hammering away at this false teaching that Jesus really didn't come, take on a human flesh, didn't take on a human body. And then the last verses from 7 through 11 are going to attack this idea that, well, we don't need to show love to anybody. Okay? So with that, let's start at verse 1 of 1 John 4, and we'll just go a little ways. Well, let's take, we'll take uh, through verse 6. We'll t- take these verses that deal with Christ not coming in the, in the flesh. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, let's go back. Do not believe every spirit here, John starts out. In other words, do not believe every word, every teaching. Don't just take it in as though it's all true. Now, John would make a very bad postmodernist person today, right? Because today we see just the opposite happening around us, don't we? There is, for many people today, there is no objective truth or falseness. What's true for you might be one truth. What's true for somebody else might be something else. Okay? So we've lost this sort of, there's either one truth or not. And John is going against this uh, quite a bit here. Now, it says to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Now, how would we today, in 21st century America, how would we test the spirits to see if they are from God. If we hear some teaching or we we hear some word that is purported to be from God, how would we test it in order to see if it is or not? What, What do we use? What's the standard? Yeah, very good. The word of God, the revealed word of God. It's not whether it sounds nice to us. It's not whether, you know, uh, it's politically correct or not. It's what does the Word of God say about that subject. So we use the Scriptures themselves and and look at all the places that the Bible would address such a topic. And if this truly is from God, it should never be in contradiction to His already revealed Word, right? It should not contradict it. That's... That's the thing. Now, going on, uh, he says, uh, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, he's speaking in generality here, but he's got in mind those secessionists in particular. 
But we have to remember that as well. There are many false prophets that have gone out into the world, false teachers, those who look like the real thing but are not. They are false. Okay? Now, now he gets right down to it, verse 2 here. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, every spirit, every teaching that Jesus has come bodily to this earth is from God. And then the opposite, you know, is true. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus, and we understand here, has come in the flesh, is not from God. So what is he saying here without saying it about these secessionists? They're, they're what? They're not from God. You know, they don't pass the test. They don't pass the litmus test. Now, let's stop here for a second and ask ourselves, so what's so important about whether Jesus came in the flesh or not? Why is, it, is that a big deal to say that, well, you know, maybe he didn't have a human body. Maybe he didn't take on human flesh. What, why is that important at all to us? This is the first thing we would say, is that he comes bodily to take our place under the law, doesn't he? As, as a human being under the law. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem those under the law. So he comes as a human to take our place under the law. Now, secondly, there's something that as a human being he can do and is going to do for all of us. Die. Yeah. To die on the cross, right? So those are two reasons, and I would add a third, that it contradicts the Scriptures. The Scriptures are very clear. Well, we just had Jesus in the post-resurrection appearances. What does he invite Thomas to do? Touch his, uh, see his hands, touch his wounds, and he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I do. So there's really three things there. It's a clear contradiction of Scripture. He's taking our place as, as a uh, human being under the law, except without sin, of course. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he is dying. Uh, as a mortal, as a human being on the cross for us, okay? So that's why it's important. That's why it's important, okay? And so that's why John is making such a big deal of this. All right, going on, uh, verse 4, notice the, the term of endearment. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped a verse here. Uh, verse 3 and every spirit that does not confess Jesus understood is uh, come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, we don't have time to get into a big, long discussion about the Antichrist. The, the New Testament in a couple, does a couple things. It talks in general about a spirit of the Antichrist, and it speaks in general about antichrists, plural, but it also talks about the antichrist, okay? Now here, we're saying, we're, we're using a little more general term, spirit of the antichrist. In other words, this is sort of the, you might say, 
in the, in the um, influence of the Antichrist. And these are simply all anti-Christian forces that have been in the world, are coming in the world, and so on. Obviously, Satan is behind them. Uh, anyone who can start denying that Jesus came in the flesh, that sin doesn't matter, that you don't have to show love to anyone, uh, that is obviously of Satan. That is not of God, and that is not of Christ. And so what he's saying here, without saying it again, is that these secessionists over here are not of God, and they are of the spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, they're on the other side. It's not that they're just a shade away. They're on the other side. Okay? They, they may look like they're in your fold. Okay? And then finally, uh, verse 4 Oh, yeah, we've got to say a little bit about this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning the false prophets. You have overcome them. Notice now, they did not overcome them by themselves, these, these Christians. They overcame them because they are in God. Now, the second half of verse 4 is so often... Uh, quoted and with a misunderstanding. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, is the way you usually hear it quoted. And I betcha 90% of the people who hear this think, the greater is he who is in you is the Holy Spirit than he who is in the world. Okay, And I think that, that what they think is, they're thinking about themselves as an individual. Greater is the spirit that's in me as an individual than he who is in the world, which, of course, would be Satan and, and all the false uh, forces. Now, I hate to put a pin in that bubble, but um, first of all, the you here, he who is in you, the you is plural. It's not singular. So he's talking about greater is he who is in you, all of you Christians together, there in, in, in Asia Minor, the church in other words, and the he who is in you is in Greek a masculine noun. If it were the spirit, it would be what's called a neuter noun in Greek. So the he, we think, is Christ, not the spirit. So greater is Christ who is in your midst than he who is in the world, meaning the false prophets, but especially Satan, okay? And again, I hear this quoted so often, and the understanding I think people have is, greater is the spirit who's in you, individual Christian, than he was in the world. And again, that's, that's not, that's, that's true, but it's not what this passage is saying, okay? That's the only problem. And uh, so, Again, the, the he who is referenced here is Christ in the midst of the church is stronger than he who is in the world. Okay? So I hate to take away that interpretation of that verse, but we've got to be accurate. All right, then uh, verse 5. They, the false prophets here, are from the world. Now, John often uses the world in a negative way to talk about sort of the... Um, anti-godly or anti-Christian forces. John does this in his gospel. He does it here as well in his letters. 
So they are from the world. In other words, they have their origin in ungodliness or anti-godliness, we could even say. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Now, here's the distinction. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And notice here, there's two choices. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's only two things. There's either truth or non-truth. Right? There's no in-between. There's no truth for you and for you and for you and for you. It's either true or it's not true. Okay? And John is reacting here, again, to those who are preaching a false gospel. All right? All right, let me take a break here and ask if there are any questions, comments on this one, on 1 John. Jim. Yeah, so the question was, we have to be careful, and I, I would concur with that. We have to be careful in the use of this so that, uh, for example, if there are Christians who are, and let's define that, confessing Christ as their Savior, who are maybe confused or have a misunderstanding of something, yes, we don't want to come down like a ton of bricks on them. But there is a difference here. You have actually false teachers. In other words, they are teaching this as the truth, and there, therein lies the distinction. That, that is when that has to be met head-on because it's leading people away from, from Christ. But yeah, that's a good question. Yes. Uh, again, the statement was, so let's say there's a pastor who is falling into this. We would, again, want to, with love, but very uh, consistently and, and straightforward, uh, approach him and say, you know, this is not according to the word of God, and here is why. And you're actually in danger of leading people away from the truth. And again, depending on what he was actually teaching. But yeah, that's a good point. There is a difference here between a, well, actually go back to the Acts passage, right? There's the guy who's reading the Isaiah and doesn't understand what he's reading. Well, we wouldn't come down on him like a, like a ton of bricks like with this passage and say, well, what do you mean, you know, you're, no, uh, there's a big difference here in that we would gently, persuasively help to guide someone who simply doesn't understand, but this is a different scenario. We've got absolutely people teaching false. These are heretics. You know, there, there's a heretic is someone who has been informed uh, that they are teaching incorrectly and persists in that false teaching. They are, they are uh, heretical in that sense. Okay. All right. Any other comments or questions? Let me ask, I think we have enough time. Let me ask you one question. Where do we see the spirit of the Antichrist alive and well today in the world? I'm not talking about the Antichrist. I don't want to get into that whole uh, uh, interpretation, but spirit of the Antichrist or spirit of lawlessness in the world today. Can you think of any examples? Where's that? Okay, the country going in a more anti-godly, uh, uh, going in more anti-godly direction, perhaps. Okay, some of the laws that things that are even legal now are permitted today that weren't before. Jen. Okay, so. Okay, so actual examples of Christian teachers in media today, who would be teaching things like name and claim it, gospel of prosperity, right? That God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and the only reason I'm not is because I don't have enough faith and trust. 
yes. Okay, so the, the political correctness movement that to call anything wrong, that in certain things wrong today, uh, you're branded a non-loving, uh, yeah, just uh, hate-filled, hate uh, uh, and maybe even question how could you be a Christian if you have that kind of understanding, right? Yes. Oh, okay, yeah, terrorism that happens in the name of God in the other direction. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we could probably go on for quite some time, but notice that spirit has been in the world. It was in the world back at that time. It is still today and will be, unfortunately, until our Lord returns. All right? All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson for next week. Uh, this is what I'm going to be preaching on next week. So we're going to use the imagery of the vine and the branches, okay, and the fruit. Let's just read this through. It's not very long, then we'll go back and take it apart. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my, fa my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, so rather simple comparison here, rather easily understood comparison. Christ refers to himself as the vine and we as individual branches going out from that vine, okay? And notice there the father is the vine dresser, or that word is kind of a generic one, meaning farmer or one who cultivates the soil. Um, every branch that does not bear fruit, in other words, and we learn later on, if it's not bearing fruit, it's not connected to what? The vine, yeah. Uh, he... he does not bear fruit, he takes away. So that's kind of a judgment, uh, judgment on the part of the Father. And notice there, every branch that does bear fruit, now I'm not a, I'm not a uh, horticulturist, but even fruit-bearing branches, uh, a, one caring for them uh, would prune away maybe some non-productive parts, even though they might be green and alive, so to speak, but prune them away. So the idea here is always toward number two things, abiding in the vine and bearing much fruit. Okay? And the vine dresser does everything possible so that we bear much fruit. Okay? Now I want to issue a caution right here. With any parable or any even uh, comparison that's made, we can't take the details down too far or we're going to start down a road of, of uh, false teaching. <laughs> so in other words, these things uh, are meant to, to teach a general, some general truths, not worrying about, you know, things like, well, what does each leaf symbolize then? Or, you know, all, all that. Um, going on, 
uh, verse 3, what does he say about the disciples? They are already clean or pruned. The word for pruning or, and cleaning is actually the same word in Greek. So every branch that does bear fruit, the Father cleans or prunes, and they, the disciples, are already pruned or they are already clean based on what again? The Word. Well, it's like a broken record in here, isn't it? The Word of God, because of the Word that I have spoken to you. That's what has made them clean, or has pruned away, I guess you would say, and made them good fruit producers. Now, from verse 4 to through verse 8, how many times do you see the phrase, abide in me? Five times. And there's a sixth when it talks about not abiding in him. Okay? So if you were to put a theme on verses uh, 4 through 8, it is definitely abiding in the vine or staying in the vine. Okay? And... Uh, Notice there, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You know, kind of a simple thing. If I were to take a, have a vine and there's a branch separated over here, would we expect any harvest, any fruit from that vine? No, of course not. Silly. It can't unless it's connected to the vine. Okay. And then he goes on and says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So if you do abide in the vine, you're going to bear much fruit. Okay? Now, let's stop for a second. What, what's the fruit we're talking about here? Good works that are done as a, as a response Truly good works are those that come from faith in Jesus Christ. It is impossible, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So staying connected to that vine in faith results in all kinds of fruit. Uh, you know, you may think also there's the connection to uh, Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's a long list of things that's listed there. And those two things aren't contradictory. Those are good and pleasing in the sight of God. And so the whole idea is for us to stay connected to the vine. And notice there again, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Another way of saying that is if you disconnect yourself from the vine, you can't do a thing. Oh, you might, you might do things in front of other people. You might have a great career. But in relationship to the kingdom, you've got nothing. Um, notice there uh, one other point, verse 7. If you abide in me, and notice there, abiding in him means my words abide in you. How important that is. That's how we stay abiding in the vine today. Now, I wanted to ask you this. <clears throat> it seems to me that... There are certain points in life where it's, we're somewhat prone, I'll put it that way, we're somewhat prone to disconnect ourselves from the vine. And we have to be careful here because I don't want to imply that, you know, that person's not a Christian anymore. They may well be. But there are certain points in life, it seems to me, where we are particularly prone 
to sever ourselves from the vine. Notice the, the vine doesn't sever us off. We, we sever ourselves off. Can anybody think of what's, if you're thinking of a child growing up, at what, let's just take this chronologically. When is a, the, maybe one of the first points where they are prone to be kind of separated from the vine? Pretty? After confirmation, yep. That's the first, the first point I would think of, that, that uh, they are confirmed. It's kind of like, okay, we've done that. It's done, and uh, we don't see them anymore, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of that seems to have to do with families and how do we see even those families around too much. Uh, on the one hand, we'd say it's great that they have been instructed, that they have been, uh, as we move back to that uh, Philip and Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, that they've been guided in the faith for those years, but then we lose sight of them. Okay? What's another point? Let's say that they're still in the vine uh, when it comes to after confirmation through high school. Where's the next point in the chronology where they might be severed off? College. Move away. Yeah. There's a couple things here. There, many of them are on their own for the first time in their life, meaning mom and dad aren't right there, and uh, nobody's uh, firing up the car to go to church on Sunday morning or for anything else for that matter, and they're all on their own. And they've got a lot of friends around them that, what, what are you doing? Going to church? What? And then we've also, we also see in some colleges and universities uh, professors who seem to delight in trying to destroy the faith of incoming freshmen in college uh, and, and uh, ridiculing the Christian faith uh, and so on. That's why it is so important. Well, a couple things. It is so important the friends that our young people make when they go to college, surround themselves with, those are either going to enforce uh, or uh, encourage a, you know, a, a godly way of life, including worship, or detract from it. And the other thing is how important our campus ministries are. I don't know if any of you know this, but uh, around mo a lot of the country, a lot of the country, we have university Lutheran chapels, and, you know, and, and there's a campus ministry there. Uh, there is at University of Missouri, for example. There is in, in a lot of, of the universities around the country. And this is a critical, critical uh, ministry because this is such an important part of a young person's life, okay? And um, I don't know if any of you have... Now, we also have, of course, our Concordia colleges and universities, but I'm talking about more secular universities where we have these campus ministries. Just out of curiosity, were any of you involved in a campus ministry anywhere when you were at college? Okay, good. Well, very good. See some hands go up. Um, it is a... It is a... Um, I'll say this, it can be a discouraging kind of ministry for a pastor because you've got every four years, you've got pretty much a whole new, there's no stable group. Now, some of the ministries do have, if they're in town, they have sort of a, a core of non-students who are there also. But there are many others that it's just every four years you've got, you know, a rotating membership here, basically. And so you can pour your heart and soul into something and, you know, six people show up for a, for a Bible study or something, or maybe not even that. So, but it is a critical, critical ministry. So college is another uh, spot. Uh, sometimes we see that after children are born, 
that those who have kind of drifted off come back once again. They think back to the way mom and dad raised them, and there's baptism and so on, and some, sometimes that happens, and we rejoice when that happens. I'll just say one other time, we're getting, uh, we're getting short of time. One other time can be, you think about post-confirmation, not only for the child, but for the parents as well. We do see that sometimes. Where when the last one is confirmed, last one's through, that we end up not seeing the parents too much anymore. Now again, I, I don't... I, Please don't understand. I'm not saying, I'm not being judgmental here. I'm not judging them, but I'm just saying these, there are certain points in life where it seems like we are more prone than other places to be in danger of dropping off the vine, okay, or dropping ourselves off the vine. And those are just some of the ones that, that we see as pastors, okay? And uh, so finally, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You know, Jesus said it another way in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Same kind of thing, okay? So the idea here, stay, uh, staying in the vine, the life-giving, life-sustaining vine, and bearing much fruit, okay? And I'll just tell you, I'm gonna have, I don't even have to bring an object lesson into church next Sunday, I got a big object lesson right up there in the front of the church, so. Come next Sunday and you'll see that object lesson, all right? All right, let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.